0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Thursday, January 21, 2010. Welcome to the Future of Education interview series and Conversations.net. Our guest tonight is Mark Bauerlein, author of The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupifies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future. Welcome, Mark.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's a delight. You're getting some clapping from the, from the panel here. So I'm going to go ahead and give a quick introduction to the environment. Uh, we are in Illuminate. This is uh, sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. Uh, and, and the project I work on for Illuminate is called Learn Central. It's a social network for educators. Uh, a lot of fun. It has Illuminate baked in. This this uh, active environment is available to you for free through Learn Central. Hope you'll come and participate in what we think is a um, fairly historic venture. Coming up on Conversations.net in the Future of Education, um, on the 26th, uh, Michael Horn returns with a case study in online learning, the Voice Academy study. Uh, Dan Coyle on the Talent Code on the 27th. Then from the 29th to the 31st, we're broadcasting live from the EduCon conference, all of the sessions. So that should be, uh, if you're not able to be in Philadelphia for that, you're welcome to watch uh, here. Tara Hunt on the Woof Factor, February 2nd. James Paul G on video games. Shell Israel. Lisa Gillis, Larry Johnson. Clay Shirky on February 11th. Dan Pink on the 17th. Uh, and you can see the rest of the list there. Ken Robinson has not rescheduled yet. He was scheduled earlier in the month and hasn't come back. Yet we're hopeful he's going to be on. Tim Magner did respond today, and he's going to set up a time. um, Dennis Litke, we're hoping will come back. Lots of fun. Tim Westergren, the founder of Pandora, coming up. That's what I'm anxious to uh, to hear. Anyway, I hope you'll you'll uh, tune in. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Uh, Mark's coming in through the telephone, so he can't see this, but you have a variety of ways to interact. And I will sh- I will tell him when you ask a question in the chat so he, that he's aware of that, and we'll make sure that, um, that when the time comes for asking questions that you can uh, raise your hand, take the mic, like, and he will be able to hear you. So I'm going to show you where these features are. This is the participant window. You can see other participants here. These are little icons that allow you to participate by clapping or smiley face, thumbs down, confused look. Uh, the hand with the green up arrow is how you raise your hand to actually take the microphone, um, and you're welcome to do that uh, later on in the show. The green check and the red X we probably won't use because um, you won't be able to see them through the telephone, but below that there is a place where you can send messages and I will um, pass along any questions from the chat uh, to to Mark. and. Um, and if you send a chat message to each other, although it appears that it's private, uh, I do see those, so know that nothing's entirely private here. Now we're going to give you a chance to actually uh, modify the whiteboard and let us know where you're listening from. So click on that little wand with the red star at the end to the left of the map, and then click on the map and let us know where you're, you're hearing us from. And do shout out in the chat. Good, good to know. Uh,
1: Looks like South Korea, maybe, coming in tonight. And Windsor, Ontario, Canada. A couple of folks from Canada. Chile, it looks like. Is someone in Chile? Santiago. Welcome.
0: Alabama, New Jersey, Florida, it looks like. North Carolina. We're glad to have you all here. Sure is fun to um, to be live and online. And especially, this is not an uncontroversial book, I'm sure, Mark. So I'm very anxious to have this chat with you. Should be a lot of fun. So I've put your picture back up on the screen. And but uh, th- thought it might be uh, useful to have you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, a little bit about your background and sort of what's brought you to this a moment of um, intellectual clarity about
1: about the concern you have
2: sure well i'm 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 an English teacher at Emory University in Atlanta. I do a lot of scholarship studies on on American literature and history and, and philosophy, but in the last few years i've becoming most interested in issues of general education and just sort of the broad intellectual values, and and attributes of of 18, 19-year-old Americans, especially those who are going to competitive universities like Emory University. And it's just over the years, one thing I've found is that while kids are just as smart, just as high IQ as as they ever have been before, and, and just as motivated as well, a lot of them going to college, more going to college, more taking AP courses, in these sort of broad areas of liberal arts. Uh, knowledge of history, of civics, of, of government, of politics, of fine art and literature, uh, and, and in their reading and writing skills, uh, I've just seen the deterioration uh, in in their work and in their in their knowledge. And when I was working for the federal government for a few years in a research office, doing among other things, uh, broad population surveys of people's leisure habits. In, in these areas, one thing we found was that the rate of young people who just read books on their own or read literature on their own has plummeted and this was this was a big finding that we had uh, this is in two thousand four and uh, I, I just decided to try to broaden the picture and find out what is really going on with with young people uh, in in America and what 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 I just concluded from from looking at a lot of research and and studies and and conversations with professionals around the country was something that is actually fairly obvious to all of us, and that is that uh, the menu of people's leisure entertainment options in the last 30 years has exploded. It's much bigger than it was before. And for one thing, when I was fifteen years old you had five T V stations. Now you have five hundred. Uh, you you only had a few radio stations. Now you you have you have you know hundreds of radio stations to choose from. Especially when you have satellite radio, and of course the introduction of digital technology, which means that while uh, uh, books used to form a pretty big portion of of young people's lives, there's just a smaller portion now because you've got video games, you've got laptops, you have the web, you have you have uh, uh, chat rooms, you have personal profile pages and Facebook and text messaging, all the rest. And that these activities have simply crowded out some of those knowledge and literacy building activities that had a bigger portion uh, before the digital age uh, hit us so hard. And that these new digital practices do not inspire uh, those levels of knowledge and those verbal skills that we had before, and it's a huge shift taking place. And I simply wanted to try to track it, raise the raise the awareness of it, and hit hard on the on the polemical side of it, really to spark the conversation, to to get the debate going back and forth.
0: So I'm I'm really glad you gave the scope of thirty years there. Uh, in, in part because, as I read the book, I kind of thought about my father, uh, who was born in 1934, and then I thought about myself, born in 1961, and then my son, born in 1990. And it seemed to me that the pattern you were describing, although you call it the digital age, I really saw the sort of the larger pattern. It seemed to me that there, that we were talking about something that was beyond the current sort of social media context, but was a, a larger pattern. So let me ask a question. So when my dad went to college, uh, not many people went to college, and uh, you know he graduated from high school. He he ended up having a fairly successful academic career. He was dean of admissions at Stanford and then at Princeton, which I think by any measure would be considered you know some level of success. But he tells the story that he would never have admitted Indeed. himself to college. And he took two years after college to work and then two years in the military. Is part of this story just that there's a greater expectation for more people to go to
1: college? Certainly, uh, we do have a big push. Get everyone into college. College
2: now, the, the studies say col- yeah, a college degree means a bigger income. It means more, uh, more better credit. Uh, more professional success, more social success for people and and so yeah, the big thing is let 's push more and more kids to get into college and uh, right now we are at extraordinarily high rates of kids going to college of kids who graduate from high school you know sixty seventy percent of them now go go directly into a two year or a four year college that 's higher than ever before, and it 's now just sort of considered a a, a given. Uh, something you more and more kids take for granted, of course you go to college indeed um, and 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 I think uh, let me respond to the first thing you said yeah uh, it is important to see the digital age really as uh not something entirely new but really adding different media outlets that we already saw expanding it 's just that now we see. An acceleration of that process. I mean, when you think about the TV stations and and the programming that went along with that. I mean, when I was ten years old in 1970, my brother and I liked to watch cartoons. Well, we could watch cartoons only one day a week on Saturday mornings. That was the big cartoon week. We couldn't go home and turn on the TV and have five stations. Delivering youth content to us all the time—the way you have now—you've got Nickelodeon, you have Disney Channel, you have MTV, is is for for teenagers largely. Now the Cartoon Network, uh, there you have a case of massive media oriented toward that young age group. Really, all the time you can you can click into it. You couldn't do that back then, and 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 so yeah, I'm 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 glad we 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 picked that up that this. This is something that did start uh, earlier with with a broader swath of media simply expanding um, uh, in in the last 50 years.
0: So in our family, uh, our first home, we didn't have access to television signals. And our neighborhood was so small they never brought in cable. So not because of any impassioned desire, but just by circumstance, we've raised our four children without television. So my sense is that part of the message you're, you're giving, and we've been really appreciative of what that's meant. Part of the the sense that I have here of your message is, let's be, awa- let's not glamorize some of these things that are taking place, and let's make sure that we're being careful about their use and and making decisions that allow us to remain vibrant intellectually for the
1: benefit of our country. Is that fair?
0: Uh,
2: absolutely, absolutely, and and the the issue that we have to realize is all of these digital tools, these digital activities, are knowledge and taste-inducing activities if they're used with that aim. I, I can go to the website of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and look at you know you know 18th century masterpieces now that I couldn't before. I can go look at old maps, old documents. I can read books. That are, that are out of copyright. It is extraordinary the universe of knowledge and information and art and culture available now. There has never been more high culture, high literature, in the old-fashioned traditional sense, more available to Americans today than ever before. The thing is, how do you get 15-year-olds to go in that direction when you have a very powerful force pushing in the other direction. And that is the old force of peer pressure. 15-year-olds care about other 15-year-olds. There are very big stakes for them to tap into one another, to know what the right songs are, the right clothes are, the right in-group, to follow all the trends, to make sure that you fit in. It's very much of a conformity culture. And the web, which could be a window onto the great big Universe of knowledge really is mostly for them a great big window onto one another, and that's only natural for for kids to do. They've always had that inclination, uh, and now they have a whole new weaponry with which to with which to follow it.
0: So we're getting a lot of great comments in the chat, and I am trying to grab them, and and I will uh, hopefully come back to them. But I, I I want to drill down on a few things that I. Saw before before I lose my role as moderator here, so I I beg your indulgence as I keep going. So Mark, I, I I heard that message and really agreed with it, and it had the same conclusion, which is you know having children who are definitely within that age category, knowing that this is their natural inclination to connect with each other. Um, two things occurred to me. One was. Uh, my children have reacted differently. And in some cases, I think, according to your concern, and in other cases, have actually used the technology somewhat brilliantly to do things that I could never have done. So I don't think that you're trying to put everybody in one boat, right?
2: No, no. And we, we recognize, first of all, that we've got a small cohort of super kids out there. They are the ones piling up six AP courses They're the ones who are doing summer internships and starting volunteer programs, and they're doing homework, you know, all the time in order to get into the top schools. But I put that group under 10%. And there there, there are some statistical reasons why why I put that group under 10%. But they're amazing. And those are the kids who are going to shine if they don't burn out by the time they're, they're 20. They're the ones who are going to medical school and law school. They are, you know, they're the masters of the universe. In, in the years to come, it's really this this middle group that is sort of just meandering through their high school years. They don't take history class seriously. They don't read enough uh, on their own, and they're just scraping by, getting getting Bs in a great inflation world that we live in. They're getting into a, a decent enough college in order to get out there in, in the uh, in the workplace, uh, but the problem is that those crucial years of, you know, late teenager, early 20s, when they do have time to be reading, when they do have time to prepare themselves intellectually for a lot of adult demands when they're 30 years old, they're not using that time wisely. It's the old, you know, it's the old adage of youth is wasted on the young. Uh, and and it's I mean I mean it it, does, it is true, and it's really being wasted on the young in that too many of them are racking up way too many hours sending text messages to one another or building that extra cool Facebook page
0: okay, so that leads me to sort of the second point, and it's um and Jenna I promise all of your good questions here we'll get to, but uh she says uh if all this is true, why place the blame on the kids? And that was my reading of the book as well. What I heard you saying was adults have abdicated their critical role as mentors. And these technologies are increasingly attractive and they address sort of natural instincts. And the answer is adults have to kind of stand up and say there's an important role here for us as adults and we're not fulfilling it. Uh, y-
2: yeah, and, and- this chapter in the book, it's, it's uh, uh, near the end of the book, called The Betrayal of the Mentors. And it says, don't blame the kids so much. Blame the people who are supposed to have passed along to them the conviction. You've got to read some books while you're 17 years old. You've got to acquaint yourself with some history. You've got to, you know, work on a foreign language a little bit. Try, try to learn some things on, on your own and this is where my generation, the boomer generation, we blew it. We were not good teachers. For one thing, we're to be so young so much. In the 1960s and 70s when I grew up, it was youth culture. And the great thing was to be young. That's why I have that, that funny subtitle, don't trust anyone under 30. Well, the, the slogan of my, well, I'm a little younger than, than this. But the slogan of the youth movement in the 60s was don't trust anyone over 30. Well, what happens when you get a generation of people who are raised to believe the youth movement is it? Well, what happens when they're 40 and 50 years old? Well, they simply are uncomfortable with the position of being an authority, the position of being a judge, a position of saying to 17-year-olds, hey, you're screwing up. Sit down and read a few more books. You know, being that stern figurehead, who is the mentor, who is going to be a little bit tough on the kids sometimes in order to get them a little farther along in in their lives. Well, <laughs> Deb is—you know—the the youth movement made it hard for young, old people to do that.
0: So that's so uh, Deb in the in the notes here is saying, uh, what happens to those adults who say that they get fired? And I think her point is, if I'm understood that correctly, one that I would make as well, which is we live in this very interesting culture in which a lot of the movies and the media portray adults as being incompetent, that youth save the day. And so those of us who are, I hope I'm in this category, trying to give my children a sense of the importance of um, certain kinds of rigorous thinking and traditions and reading certain material that it's really important to know about protecting the freedoms in this country, that we've, we've faced maybe a little bit harder battle doing that than my dad did, you know, 40 years ago.
1: I, I think so. So when we had a culture created that turned adolescence
2: into a time of rebellious heroism, when, when you had... Young people, given a certain glamour just by virtue of their youthfulness, that that, that pulled a lot of authority away from older people, and it made uh, the old guy who says, "Oh, these kids these days," into yeah, a ridiculous figure. Now, uh, about about this issue of older people complaining about the young, and I, I actually got on on the web page. I noticed Jenna's question about. Look, haven't old people been complaining about, actually, it's sort of a, a related question. Haven't old people always been complaining about young people? Yes, they have. The older generation always gets tired of the younger generation because the younger generation is a little bit you know, naive, but they're still aggressive, and they think they're the center of the universe, and that, that everything is, is all about them and them, and they're so inexperienced and ignorant. And, Frankly, they come off today as just being old fogies and curmudgeons. I actually think it's a healthy thing when the older generation does take a critical posture toward the younger generation. They need older people to tell them you know you 're sixteen years old you don 't know anything. you think you know everything, but you don't know anything This is something that is the responsibility of old people to do. You pass along the idea of limits, the idea of you don't know everything, the world didn't begin with you, the most important date this year is not the day you get your driver's license. Uh, These things are what older people should take as their role in helping to educate young people. Now, it is also a healthy thing for younger people to resent this. And to say, you old guys are getting a little bit rigid, a little authoritarian, you know, you guys aren't so great, the world isn't perfect, what did you make? That's actually a healthy thing to have happen if there is some tension between the generations where one is criticizing, the other is criticizing back. This helps ensure the passage of culture, the improvement of of ideas, Uh, the younger people formulating arguments back and forth. I get a lot of angry, angry emails from kids, Uh, a lot of them with four-letter words and 12-letter words in them, and I always write back. Because, hey, they're taking the time to make arguments. When we get past the insults, then we often have very good exchanges. And if they prove me wrong, well, that, that couldn't be, Better I mean we want every harsh judgment in this book to be proven wrong, and simply by having that exchange with kids because they've read the book and they're offended by what it says, they're honing their their rhetorical skills they're building up their their own arguments they're talking about evidence, and so it's you know what we say in that overused term it's a teachable moment, so I think that's that's actually. Uh, uh, only a partial criticism to say the old people are just criticizing on that, that always happens. Well, it doesn't happen enough these days.
0: So, Mark, I'm curious. Um, you don't, I don't think you've mentioned it in the book, but it, it felt to me as though maybe a part of this story is the larger sort of generational, cultural uh, cycle of uh, an, an abundance or an, an excess era that and if we and if we look at the you know the period of time after World War II and um, sort of the hard work and the success and then moving into you know, kind of larger willingness to be permissive and looking at um, sort of less rigorous ways of moving forward in society, is there a part of this that's not technology at all and it's just kind of the cycles of history? Where generations go through phases with different expectations for their youth
2: it's interesting that this this actually comes up uh, with with an interview I did with with South America, you know a radio station in Bogota, Colombia, in which they they said, "You know why don't you Americans use Facebook for more responsible ways? We use it in our country for." Uh, for, for organizing protests, for getting boycotts started, for following what goes on in the government. It's really an important private civic tool for us to use. But you Americans seem to be using it so much for just social stuff. And I said, well, some Americans use it for, for civic reasons, for responsible reasons, but, but I, you know, I, I guess most of them don't. And they said, why? And then they expanded it to say, why is it that you Americans seem so immature? A 25-year-old American seems the equivalent of a 15-year-old Colombian to us. And I said, well, I I have heard this before from from other people, and I think that when you think about the condition Americans, young Americans are in, and this, this, this gets to your question, I think. When you think about the conditions Americans are in, it's very easy to avoid a lot of those harsh realities that Colombians have to face from the time they are 12, 13, 14 years old. You you have, in many countries of the world, you actually have tanks lined up at the border. You have to think about your national security. You have to think about being invaded. Or you look upon an election coming up in your country as, well, this could be a national crisis. The United States has the longest-running government on Earth by far. And yet, you know, we never look upon an election as, 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 you know, jeopardizing the very nature of our government. In other nations, they do. And that doesn't get into issues of poverty, issues of health, civil war. So it's very easy to avoid a lot of those difficult realities that makes one a little bit more sober, a little bit more responsible and, and, and dutiful. And even in this time of economic uh, difficulty right now, it's nothing compared to what Americans had to deal with in the past. We talk about we have 10% unemployment. During the Depression, unemployment reached 30% in, uh, in in some areas. So I think that there is a certain kind of softness, a certain complacency that comes with uh, uh, nice social and and economic conditions for many, many kids. And who wants to face those? Who wants to deal with those things? If you can avoid it, why not?
0: So I, I wish I had at my fingertips the the John Adams quote. Do you know it, where he talks about that he studies w- war so that his son can study politics, so that his son can study art and history? Is that a familiar quote
1: to you?
2: Exactly. He, he laid out. He, he laid out this three part. Yeah. I'm. He said I must. I must study the arts. Of war and so, the, so that my son can study sort of economics and politics, and then his son, you know we move from you know the revolutionary moment to building a state to now culture can come in, leisure can can improve. yeah, then the question is what comes after the next generation and, and the next generation? Well, you get art, and and maybe you have things taken seriously, and maybe we just lead into a form of uh, shopping, yeah, frivolousness. You know, Christopher Lash's famous book uh, from from thirty thirty years, thirty five years ago, the culture of narcissism. This is where we're at, and unfortunately, the web plays into those natural narcissistic impulses that every fifteen year old has. I mean, how many? How many 15-year-olds have an iPhone with 100 pictures of themselves on it? What does it mean to be a fragile, delicate ego that the 16-year-old is, and suddenly you can write a whole web page about you, 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 you. It has pictures. You talk about the things that go on in your life you you have a diary for everyone to see. In the old days, you you kept a diary and you put it under lock and key and the last thing you wanted was for everyone to read it. Anyone to read it. Now you put it all out there and hope the world uh looks looks at it. Well, you know, this this actually gives kids the wrong message because one of the conditions of maturity is realizing that uh you know ninety percent of what happens to you in an average week is of absolutely no meaning or significance to anybody else. Stop talking about it so much. You're not that important,
0: so Mark, in many ways, the genie's out of the bottle. I mean, I don't see us going back to not having television. I don't see us going back to not having blogging and Twitter and Facebook. So, what do those of us who care about this do? What, what's what constructive role do we play now in sort of negotiating the cultural dialogue about these topics? What what what, are, what call to action would you make to us?
2: Uh, this is this is you know the, the, the big question that always comes up in, in the talks that I give, and I, I don't I don't really have have a broad answer except to uh, say, look, parents and schools, parents and teachers need to ensure some period in the day in which kids disconnect and log off, get away from their pages and their phones and their texts and everything else, and engage with serious, sustained, slow intellectual activities, just for a period of time during the day. And that could include watching C-SPAN. It could include going on to YouTube and calling up uh, Ronald Reagan's speech at the 1964 Republican Convention. It could include going online and reading uh, the New Republic magazine or the Weekly Standard magazine. It could include those digital tools just as long as parents are getting kids engaged with ideas and words in Good strong intellectual and fun ways uh this this isn't you know another another bit of homework uh and and make it an activity that balances all the other stuff that they do and it balances is a key here if i I have a four year old and, and he he he's a little tyrant he, he he terrorizes his father but if if I have an hour of reading with him a day and an hour of talking with him, just conversing with him, getting him to think. To opine, to narrate, then if he wants to go back to a website and watch dinosaurs eating each other, that's fine. If he wants to go watch, you know, uh, uh, The Music Man, that's his favorite thing right now, That that's fine. Uh, but you've got to carve out some space in the day for, let's just put it, the slow intellectual activities. Uh, the, the, the rich content, the rich historical material, and make it fun for them. You know, this this is the parent's job or, or the teacher's job. Make it engaging. Uh, make them focus. Uh, make them so that uh, they don't interrupt their 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 lives every three minutes because they've got to check, check uh, uh, their their phones. That's that's what I that's what I advise and it's nothing sophisticated about it. But it's work. It is hard work and it does require more vigilance from parents now because kids are inundated with all of this material. I I wouldn't want to be a kid today because uh, of all the frenzied pace of all of it. So this is is all all I can say. In people's private lives, that's what they do. Jenna
0: is chomping at the bit. Ooh, 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 when is it time? I get one more question, Jenna, and then we'll go on. We'll go to Q&A. So Mark, I don't I don't think it's possible for me to dive more s- deeper or more seriously into this than you have in the book. But I want to ask what I think is a pretty serious question. Do these uh forces or or societal changes that you're recognizing in the book lead us to a place where in fact, the importance of being able to defend core democratic principles, uh, to understand the uh, role of government, to think about the the role of uh, institutions in public. Are we actually at a very unique place where it's going to be very important? And obviously, I have an, you know my own my own sense must be coming through in the question I can tell just by how I'm asking it. But it seems as though we're at a place where we really need to be able to talk about some pretty serious issues in a very serious way. And is one of your concerns that that the, the same culture and society are are leading a large group of the population
1: to look for easy answers?
2: Well, let me answer that uh, in two two respects. It has been thought that digital technology was going to be a force to break up dictatorships, to break up authoritarian regimes, because authoritarian regimes always rely upon controlling information, and that digital technology would break through all the firewalls. Well, I think if you look at the history of the last couple of years, that belief is looking a little bit premature. Uh, and the Twitter revolution is not doing to Iran what people were saying it was going to do. At least I don't see that right now. And China, uh, the people we are talking about there is getting more, the government in China is getting more sophisticated about using the web and controlling the, the information. So that, I think that's an open question that, that, uh, that, that the, uh, the enthusiasm isn't warranted. The other thing I will say, you have to remember something about American style democracy it puts a heavy burden of knowledge upon citizens. Citizens have to know what their government is up to. They have to remember the principles on which the country was founded, and they have to hold to the representative heroes and villains of the past and hold current people up to that standard
1: in the present. Uh, If we don't follow what is going on in the halls of power, They're
2: going to abuse their power. That's what power does. It corrupts. And the founding fathers understood the centralization of power is a dangerous thing. That's why they put freedom of the press in the First Amendment. They didn't put freedom in the press because they liked reporters. They despised reporters. Thomas Jefferson and George Washington want to hang them from the highest tree. But they also knew that a distant government had to be watched by someone. And that's what the press was supposed to do, to let people know what was happening. And then the people could vote the bums out, uh, as as they should a lot more often than they currently do. So, uh, uh, if people don't know what is going on, if they don't have historical awareness and civic curiosity, we are going to end up with the kind of Congress that we deserve. And it happens time and again. And and if you want to know the importance of knowledge in a democracy, just look at knowledge, historical knowledge, in a uh, a totalitarian society. When Joseph Stalin uh, did his show trials in the 1930s and called up heroes of the revolution, had them confess, and then basically the usual form of execution was put put them in a room and put a bullet in the back of their head. Not only did he execute those figures, but then he had his clerks go back through books and newspapers and remove that person's name and image everywhere it appeared. In other words, you're controlling historical memory. That's what what totalitarian societies do to enslave people. Well, if people don't have any historical memory all by themselves, that only plays into the abuses of power. This is why we have to have a vigilant citizenry out there watching what is going on. You've got to have civic duty that is skeptical, that is suspicious, and you need knowledge to exercise that citizenship responsibly.
0: seems like there's, um, there's a tension between comfort and principle. And and I guess what worries me a little is that we're so far into comfort that we might give up principle to maintain the comfort. But let's stop there because if I don't turn the microphone over to Jenna, I will um, really be in trouble. And she's raised her hand. <laughs> Jenna, this is delightful. Okay, I'm giving you the mic. I don't know if you've done this before, but you can. Uh, there, you go. there you go. Can you hear me? Yes.
1: Yes.
3: Okay. Um, Thanks, Mark. This has been fantastic. Um, I have kind of a a two-part question that I want to ask you or get your thoughts on. Um, It seems like you've been talking a lot in this conversation about the downsides to digital media and the social technologies that we have now. The noise, the narcissism, the challenges of cutting through all of that noise, but there's also a definite upside. um, And among those those benefits to some kids are especially the marginalized ones or the alienated ones who have typically or traditionally been marginalized they have this chance now to find people like them and to kind of make those those um, connections with people that they wouldn't previously have been able to. That's one example, but there's also this this new phenomenon of of all these new avenues to participation and, and you, you kind of hinted at this earlier when you talked about those kind of those, those great bastions of cultures and museums um, whose contents were traditionally decided by the curators of those museums. But now we're seeing this time when everybody, if they want to, if they choose to, and they have the access to the technologies can join in on those conversations about what's culturally valu- valuable. So I want to get your thoughts on that, but I also want to get your thoughts on um, what I would propose is um, a problem with the, the way that we're measuring um, whether measuring kids intelligence. So I would argue that we have a new developing model for civic engagement that can't be measured by, by voting polls. It's measured in other ways and the types of participation that we see from kids in their local affinity spaces, their local social networks and so on. So we're seeing new sorts of practices and I wonder if there's a possibility that the measures that we have for things like literacy and math and science, if those just somehow no longer apply to the practices and the the types of, of skills that are now needed in this century and this decade.
1: Uh, I think that the first thing you said about about young people um being able to find some uh some community,
2: some contact. You know, the oddball kid who was just left out in high school in tenth grade, well now he can find some some people through through the networks and that there is a benefit there. There is a value kids who have difficult questions about sexuality and don't know where to ask or about sexual diseases and don't know, they don't have anyone to ask but they can go online now and and pose those questions. Those are very good offerings uh, that, that you have. And you're right, you have to appreciate the extraordinary benefits
1: of, of all of that. And I think that uh, we have so much provided for us
2: by the web that yeah it's easy to take it for granted and and we don't want to we don't want to do that. In emphasizing the negative, uh, the way I see it was this, this book came out when you just had a lot of digital hype building, a lot of revolutionary talk, a lot of enthusiasm for the web, and not enough of an appreciation for possible downsides this now my wife will tell you that I'm just constitutionally oriented toward pessimism uh, toward toward everything is getting worse so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll admit to I'll, I'll admit to playing up the uh, the negative side of that but uh, I I think that yes you're right we have to appreciate uh,
0: the, the, the
2: social contact issues now about the measurement of intelligence well you, you've got test developers right now who are trying to come up with tests that will measure useful knowledge and skills, and the thing we need to realize about that is test developers have a vested interest in measuring things that matter in measuring things that count and and they're making a lot of money doing it, and if they don't do it right, they're losing a lot of money, and they've got very smart people working on these tests and so If you have forms of intelligence that are determined to be of value in the workplace, the test developers will develop tests to establish that and it will then be carried over into the curriculum as well. So I pretty much rely upon the workplace to push the test for the intelligences that matter. Now, in terms of the civic engagement, if we can get more civic engagement through the web, if we can get more kids interested in politics because of that, that would be great. And the Obama vote last year, the actual actual percentage of young people who did vote didn't go up that much. It only went up two percentage points from 2004. Uh, But there was a big issue in that they went two to one for Obama. We've never had a breakdown like that uh before since since the vote was lowered to age 18 but did you see what the vote count was in Massachusetts 2 days ago in, for 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 the youth vote they only came out in i think it was 15 it was either 15 or 17% only 15 or 17% of them came out and voted in Massachusetts we had the same fall in the youth vote La- a few months ago in the New Jersey and Virginia governor's races as well. So the Obama inspiration phenomenon looks like a pretty short-lived one, That at least so far. We'll see what happens in the midterm elections later on, uh, later on this year. But uh, I, do, I simply do not see a great deal of civic upsurge among, uh, among young people today, at least in terms of measurement by vote. And the vote is the most important, you know, if you take a single activity, the vote, the vote is it. The vote. I mean, the, what, what is more important than what is what is a more important right than the right to the right to vote?
0: Well, I, I wonder if we can even make a distinction, too, Mark, between uh, participation and the kind of uh, uh, thoughtful intellectual participation that you're discussing. One of the things that concerns me a lot is the inability for there to be thoughtful dialogue. I read a magazine called The Week. And I love it because it. it uh, if you haven't seen, if those of you here haven't seen this magazine before, it's a wonderful magazine because it. It's a weekly that gives the perspective across the political spectrum uh, for each story. So it's a great chance to kind of read all of the different uh, ways in which people are approaching a, a particular issue. But I find that in my um, sort of cultural interactions with others, that, that there's a desire for simplicity when. There's the need for complex thinking. And can we make, does it, does it help to make a distinction between activity
1: and uh, rigorous activity?
2: Well, one thing to realize about rigorous activity is that it requires a background, a thorough background in reading and study and learning. You can't just engage in a rigorous activity if you don't have a lot of knowledge about the issue in in play. If you don't know about its history, its genesis, its politics, uh, well, whatever whatever it may be. Uh, for example, the when we talk about something like uh, the separation of church and state, it would help if people would would say, well, what, you know, when when they ask people, what is the first right guaranteed in the Bill of Rights? And most people say free speech. When they when they polled college Students that only only one in 25 kids knew that the first right guaranteed in the Constitution is freedom of religion. Now you want to say, well, uh, these days it's very easy to cast that right as uh, secular people wanting to protect themselves from religious zealots. Actually, the people who inserted that most, who wanted it into the Constitution most, were religious people. They didn't want the state interfering in their religion. It was religious people who feared the state, not the state fearing religion. Now that's that, that's just a background issue. That just helps you understand the debate. If you come in the debate just, I'm an atheist and I don't like religion. I don't want them to have any part of anything,
1: well then, then you're
2: just you're just reflexive and, and you're not you're not entering that. You you can't be rigorous. Uh, without, again, some, some background knowledge of the issue. And the thing about background knowledge is to get background knowledge requires just a period of reading, a period of study, a period where you say, you know, I can't really have an intelligent opinion about this until I do a little homework. And I'm talking about years of homework. Now, what the web does is encourage young people
1: to respect their own opinions at too early an age, they speak out too quickly, too soon, and so what 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 what
2: I find is that, that you, know, you need a period of just hitting the books and keeping your mouth shut for a while. Ask questions,
1: don't give your opinion. think about things. don't just assert what you already believe. And
2: uh, much of our education is being turned over to giving kids more possibility to, to opine at age 15. And I, I don't think that that's, uh,
3: think that's, that's again, that's
0: premature. <laughs> I'm loving the dialogue here, Mark, and I, and I think it's really helpful. And I, and, and I think in some ways we're proving the point of the importance of uh, civil dialogue, by having this discussion, because there are different points of view here, and there are some things I agree with you on and some that I don't, and you know, we're all going to come from different perspectives. But it's important to be able to talk about it and to, to at least sort of thoughtfully express different feelings and, and, and different reasoning. Who's, who
1: has critiqued your work or given an alternate view that you really respect? Uh, well, I, I think some people have have come forward and just raised criticism by saying one
2: thing like, "Well, look, I mean, you know, just the title, the dumbest generation. This this is uh, uh, sort of a you know throwing out there. Come on, uh, that's just that's just a a hand grenade." And and several people have, have said that, and I said, "Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is." But you know, I I I wrote I've, I've written a few academic books which were nicely nuanced in their titles and very sober and and scholarly. And they got about 100 readers. Uh, You know, I wanted to get this out there into, into the public debate. And I wanted to make something on the table that would get picked up by reporters. And so it wouldn't be a review, a book review. It would be an article about the issue. And you have to throw in some strong polemical jabs. Uh, you have to be over the top a little bit, and then you hope in the ensuing discussion that things do get more get more nuanced and and more uh, uh, balanced uh, in in terms of what what the actual issue is. But certainly, this isn't the dumbest generation. You know, in terms of IQ, well, you know, IQ scores and that celebrated Flynn effect—they went up from about the 1930s to the 1980s. There's evidence now that it's flattening off uh, in in recent years. Actually, Flynn himself uh came up with a with a study uh, a while back saying that it looks like scores might be going down in in, in Great Britain uh even though the web is certainly saturated in, in in young people's lives there but uh that that I think is um that that's one criticism uh that that, that people have made um uh, but is
1: there an the ad- and I I, don't,
2: I mean I could think the several people who
0: is there is there somebody who's advocating for the positive value of technology in youth like Don Tapscott or
1: that visibility where you feel like they make a good case? I I think I'll I'll mention a few more. I think Stephen
2: Johnson's book he he made some good points about about in certain areas people are getting smarter. This is that everything bad is is good for you. Uh, book, but I think the, the you know the the good people on this are uh, Clay Shirky uh, is is an important voice uh, on on these issues. I, I think that the researchers at the Pew Internet and uh, in American Life Survey they're they're trying to to get solid uh, solid longitudinal data uh, on what is going on in in young people's lives um more people on on the other side i I think Don tapscott's work uh, he, he's tried to build up uh, a research base about what is going on uh Neil howe i mean these are these are you know clear people Neil Howe has been arguing that this generation, the millennials are actually a great improvement on on prior generations as well uh, one thing I, I find that a lot of people on the pro technology side uh, while I, I wouldn't want to dispute their methodology, their research, I, I think there is a question to raise with how many of them are having a vested interest in in their take on on things. I mean, they're, they're that is, they may do consulting work, they may do they may be marketing their work or their expertise uh, in in certain directions. So one always one always has to see how how much they might have an investment in in their own in their own conclusions. But that that's just a, that's just a question uh, that I would raise about
0: about them. So we have a couple more minutes. This has sure been fun, Mark, and I'm really glad you're here. Next time I think we should invite your wife to come on with you.
1: But what's her perspective? Uh, well,
2: I was going to dedicate the book to my wife, but when she did see the title and subtitle, she asked me
1: not to let her name appear anywhere near it. <laughs> So we have a few more minutes. Uh, um, is there anybody
0: else who's dying to ask a question? Uh, Jenna, a lot, a lot of the ones I recorded were from you. Angela, I think you asked the question earlier on that it didn't come back up.
1: Uh, did you want to raise anything? Are you still here and, and, and listening? So Deb's asking, Mark, uh, wasn't using the computer a much easier way to write your book? Uh, in fact I, I compose by hand I,
2: I write with a pencil and paper I'll, I'll write paragraphs and rewrite them and rewrite them and then load them onto the computer uh, so that, that uh, but of course the computer is great uh, you don't have to retype pages if you if you make a typo you don't have to get out you know the the uh, uh, those duplicates um, the mimeograph sheets and and, and so on that, that people used to do uh, but I, I actually make Students write papers by hand. Uh, they're rough drafts. They write by hand, and the reason I do that is because it slows them down. And when they say to me, "Why should I slow down? I mean, what, the computer makes it so much faster," and I said, "I want you just to try writing a paper by hand, and I think slowing down will good writing. If people uh, slow down, then they take a little more time on that verb they select." They might work a little harder on, on improving the syntax of a sentence. I actually think that they edit more. They pay more attention to the craft of writing, of selecting the right word uh, here and there, of making sure the sentences flow logically from, from one to the other uh, when they do write them by hand. I think the computer, again, does speed people too much up too much. What is the computer so efficient at doing? It makes things go fast 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 that's what it's all about word processing think of the term instant messaging one it's just the message it's not the style account, count and it's instantaneous well so i regard my classroom actually as an adversarial space where i say here we're going to read real slowly and we're going to write real slowly
0: mark this has been delightful you're definitely at one end of the spectrum and I think it's been really fun to hear that. I mean, I think uh, just the, the sort of the final uh, cherry on top was the uh, requiring your students to write by hand. I'm sure that we're going to hear about that for weeks within the, the chat here. But I, I you know, I, I, at first I reacted uh, with some surprise, and then I thought about my own hobby, which, uh, one of my hobbies, which is photography, and how uh, I still believe that in the value value of black and white photography, and, 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 and maybe for some of the same reasons. So this has really been fun. Uh, we've, we've got just a, a minute left, so I want to do a little bit of closing here. I am going to clap for you, Mark, and if you're still seeing the screen, you can see the little clapping hand. Sure appreciate your coming on, uh, being a part of the dialogue, um, really l- love this and, and really enjoyed the conversation, and, and I'm grateful that you've taken the time tonight. So thanks for doing that.
1: Thank you. This is great. Okay, and so Mark, you're
0: welcome to to go at any time. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, Learn Central, Illuminate, and C Bloom and Associates, who paid for the books. My book budget, much appreciated. And do, don't forget, we have some good sessions coming up. Sure, glad to have had you on tonight. We'll we'll do about a five or ten minute post show. Mark, you don't need to stick around for that, but uh, we'll do a follow-up for anybody who'd like to uh, stick around and talk. So thanks, Mark. Best to your family. sure appreciate uh, your voice and your, uh, the thoughtfulness
1: of your arguments. Thank you. That was wonderful. Okay, thanks. Well, so how did you all like that? So for those of us who are normally here, the uh, kind of the
0: EdTech evangelist crowd, uh, I, th- I thought that was a really fascinating perspective, and actually really enjoyed the book. Although I, uh, you know, I wasn't going to call Mark out on it, but a couple of times I felt like, um, you know, he just sounded like a guy saying, "Hey, when I was your age, I had to walk five miles to school in the snow, uphill both ways." And uh, it, it's almost comical. So that when he said at the end, well, it's not really the dumbest generation, I thought, OK. So yeah, he's, he's
1: exaggerated for the purpose here of creating a dialogue. Anybody want to take the mic? You're certainly welcome to. I'll give everybody mic capability. So a um, uh, smaller crowd. Do people know him, um, and do, they, do you know his perspective, and so was that maybe why not as many people showed up? And I've wondered if this is just a hard week, but we had, you know, relatively low attendance this week
0: in the sessions, and, I, you know, Yong Zhao I thought was uh, sort of brilliantly interesting. And, um, you know, I think Mark's point here is worth knowing, especially for the purpose of um sort of knowing those arguments. I mean I he clearly represents one side and, and uh you know, I just had to laugh when he talked about making a student try to paper by hand. I, I you know, I thought that was sort of the the, the
1: epitome of uh demonstrating his um uh, his position. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I
0: mean, I think this is a, a, a really valuable read. And and I will say that I, uh, from the standpoint of thinking about culture and politics, you know, I do think that, that there is the need
1: to consistently talk about the importance of historical knowledge dialogue, uh, although we live in a, uh, you know, most of us have grown up in a, in a democracy.
0: You know, Yang Zhao reminded us of just how different it is to be in a democracy
1: that's worth uh, uh, knowing how to defend intellectually. Chantal, I agree. And I'm, again, I love the civil dialogue. I, I love being to have this conversation in a thoughtful way.
0: So I was, yeah, he could see the chat. He did log on. So I was at a conference uh, last week, the FETC conference, and, and gave a talk on how, sort of how the world is changing with Web 2.0 and, and had one guy really push back in the audience and said, you know, we, we're we teaching writing. Things, that hasn't changed. So our teaching really shouldn't change because it's still about teaching writing and reading. And i of course, thought of good responses after the fact, but one thing that I thought of, and I'm curious to get your take on is um when I was writing, it was always understood that, w- that the five paragraph essay that I was writing would be edited by somebody else, and if I ever got published, there would always be a chain of people looking at that before I got out to the public, and that my children and many of your students are are not writing five paragraph essays in most of what they write. they're writing one to 10-sentence responses on the web. No one is filtering that before it gets out. And so does that, does that change how writing is taught? Uh, there is a, a very important to know how to communicate clearly now because my kids are running way more than I ever did at their age. And do you teach writing any differently, knowing that most of what they write will not be five-paragraph essays, and most of what they write will instantly be viewable by others? Does
1: that change the teaching of writing? Yes, so Michael, that's my question. Does it change how writing is taught?
0: I mean, if, if writing is taught by, by five-paragraph essays,
1: should there be assignments that are more like the kind of writing that they will be doing. I'll grab the mic here, Stephen, and give my sense of it. The type
4: of writing I think that they're doing, you know, the the blogging and and the easily publishable, easily shared writing, um, is that really the kind of writing we want to be teaching? Um, You know, you were taught a very formal way of writing, and uh, if you went into, say, an English program, for example, or a journalism program, you would have been taught a very different kind of writing. Uh, you went to law school, you would have been taught a, another kind of writing. Um, if you went and did a PhD program, you would have been taught yet another kind of writing. Um, I think the, the question should be, is what kind of writing do we want our children today to be able to do as a bare minimum? And If what we want in terms of a bare minimum is for them to be able to blog without grammatical errors, then yes, you want to change the type of writing you're
1: teaching, but I think we should probably set our goal a little higher. Kathy, did you want to respond? Looks like you've taken the mic, but we can't hear you if you're speaking. Sorry about that. So Michael, I wonder about that because most of the students are, the writing
0: that they do and the communicating they do will be that sort of, let's call it one paragraph writing. And is that not valuable to to teach because it is communication, it's written communication, and there is um, a fair amount of
1: knowledge to be transferred with regard to learning how to do that. I think it goes to the fundamental question of what is the purpose of our K-12 education
4: system. Um, Historically, it's been to prepare them for life after graduation, what they're going to do when they're 19, which generally speaking has meant to go to some form of post-secondary or go into the work environment. Um, More and more right now, because of this everyone must go to college and let's dumb down our undergraduate degrees. It basically means everyone is going off into a post-secondary institution. And do we really want to prepare students to be able to write and express themselves effectively in these one-paragraph essays if where the vast majority of them are going to end up is in a post-secondary institution. Is that really doing them justice for the person that has to teach the freshman courses at some college or university?
0: Well, so I would ask, is it either-or? Meaning that, uh, um, and I guess I'd push back a little because I would say that the greater volume of material produced both by those who go on to higher ed and those who don't will not be the kind of formal writing that's done, that's used to teach writing. Interesting. Please push back.
4: Well, I'd say the other side of that is, um, you know, if they're already doing it and they're already doing it at least somewhat effectively, because they're at least able to communicate with each other, do we really need to teach it? Uh, You know, when you and I went to school, I mean, the telephone was the way in which you and I would have communicated with people in a verbal fashion to quite an extent, but, you know, no one ever taught me in my English class how to deliver an effective telephone conversation, but I did have to do public speaking, even though very little of my formal stuff uh, you know, in communication was in public speaking.
0: It's so funny you use that example because the first thing that came to mind for me was, I was taught how to hold a telephone conversation by my parents. And it started with how I answered the phone. Hello, this is the Harganon residence. This is Steve Harganon, May I help you? And then if somebody, they asked to speak to somebody, yes, just a moment, please. I mean, you know, it's so funny because I actually remember being taught that. Not necessarily in school, but there there was a need to be taught that. And I'm wondering if, can can we use an example? Uh, If educators have had a hard time blogging, and social networking certainly I think has caught on in a much greater way than than blogging it for educators. Because it was daunting for teachers and administrators to think about writing for a blog. Could we look at that as as an example of how the kind of writing they were taught to do didn't really prepare
1: them for the communication of blogs and social networking? Yeah, Michael, Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I it's a good topic and I think uh uh I don't I don't mean
0: to keep hammering on one perspective. I do, mm-hmm. I, did, I, I, meant I meant to mention, to mention that, uh, that uh, article that came out, sorry, Michael, I talked over you there, but I meant to mention the article that came out, uh, the, um, oh, the, um, uh, daily media use among children and teens up dramatically from five years ago. And who produced that? Does anybody know? Anybody read that? Oh, Kaiser Family Foundation. Somebody gave a link for the week in the chat. Uh, I think, I can't
1: remember who it was, but there was a link. And you could just do a search on the web. I think Google. Yeah, there you go. Well, monopolizing the audio has never stopped me, Michael. So I certainly don't want to stop you from monopolizing. Well, to pick up on your question then about the, the type of writing with
4: blogging, Um, I mean, if you want to look at what kind of writing blogging falls into, it probably most closely mirrors um, either journal writing or uh, journalistic writing, depending on the focus of your blog. And I know, I mean, I graduated in 93, so I don't know where that places me in terms of, of the rest of the audience, but both of those things were part of my English curriculum from as long as I can remember, and I specifically could
1: state at least from grade seven onward. Mike, what was it
5: about grade seven onward? I'm sorry, I missed that comment.
4: I was um responding to Steve's question about the um you know about teachers not teaching blogging because they don't feel comfortable with it, and I indicated that depending on the type of blog you have most of the kind of writing that bloggers would do would either fall into that journal slash diary kind of writing or more of a journalistic reporting kind of writing. And, you know, as someone who graduated in 93, and I don't know if that places me as uh, as in the average in terms of where, uh, how old everyone is, or if it places me younger than other people, um, but those were things that
1: were part of the English curriculum that I had to take all through high school and most of middle school. I see teachers doing quick writing. And and teachers have trouble getting writing in
5: now with, let's see, they have 90 minutes of reading in my school and a three-tier reading intervention deal. And then we've got math for an hour. So writing's a problem, but now they're actually doing assessments in writing, so they're going to have to include writing too, so I guess they'll have to extend the day. Journal writing is big in our school also. I do see a lot of journal writing. Children are required to keep journals, and they have to take them home, get them signed, bring them back. That's one way they get their writing in. Good point.
0: I was curious about reading. Are you seeing um, are the statistics about the the decrease in reading, uh, I guess, true? It seems that they are. And are they as alarming as they're made out to be? or? Is there just a changed balance in terms of where reading's taking place? Like I know I'm reading and I'm not really representative of a of a team, but I'm reading a, a lot of material I'm reading books, but I'm also reading a lot of material on the web
1: that is in many ways, although different, just as invigorating. So clarify that question, Steve.
5: Reading with regard to what?
1: Students, well, I, children? Uh, yeah, student
0: reading, and, and I guess the the statistic from the Kaiser Family Foundation was that the, the, you know, there's been a decrease in, you know, actual book reading uh, over the last five years and, and that, you know, Mark points out over the last 30 years, um, his, his feeling is it's been pretty significant.
5: Um, I can only speak for my school, and there's a huge push on reading um, books, but there's a conflict because the teachers are pushing for reading books and the librarian is pushing for reading books. But then we've got this whole conflict between the fact that we're not making annual yearly progress. And so then there's a question from the educator's viewpoint with regard to if they keep pushing the standard up, all schools eventually won't make annual yearly progress. It's um frustrating but i see a lot of children with a great love of reading and it's kind of sad because that RTI model where you have 90 minutes of reading and there's you know everyone has group instruction there's like the three tier well a lot of the children that are the top readers um are getting bored by that. They also get bored by a lot of the programs that are being brought in, like we have Scott Forsman now, which was really sad for me to see because I'm 56 years old and I was a real, uh, see Ted, see Sally, spot, jump, I was pathetic. It didn't work for me. So to see it back again makes me sad. But I think the kids do, do read, but I don't know about everywhere.
0: Well, this is really fun. I love these post-show talks. I actually have to go. I'm doing a special session with educators in Australia on helping them create a series like this. And so with apologies, I'm going to close the room. Thanks for coming tonight. Sure enjoyed the discussion. I think that with uh, Yang Zhao and uh, Mark Bauerlein tonight, we've had a really interesting week. And
1: so sure appreciate those of you who have been here. Have a good night.